Welcome to the Advent Houston podcast. At Advent, our mission is to embrace, embody, and extend the grace of Jesus Christ to the Texas Medical Center, Rice University, and the surrounding neighborhood. We're glad that you're here with us today. Good evening again. Uh, if I haven't had a chance to meet you, uh, my name is Taylor Leachman. I'm the pastor here at Advent. And um, uh, as I said at the beginning, this is our very first Christmas Eve service. And so uh, we're so grateful that y'all are here uh, with us this evening. Um, we are finishing a, a four-part series uh, on the, uh, the mothers of Jesus through um, the genealogy in the book of Matthew. So we began uh, with Tamar. Uh, we went to Rahab. Uh, then we, we actually went uh, from there to um, Ruth. There we go. That was last week. And, uh, and this week we are going uh, to, to focus a little bit on Mary, the mother of Jesus. Um, and so as we, as we do so, I'm actually not going to read the scripture passage again for us because it's the exact same passage that we've read uh, thus far. Um, but uh, we are going to be looking at a couple different uh, of the lessons as we look at Mary, her life, and how she magnifies what the Lord is doing for us in Jesus. Jesus Christ. But before we do so, would y'all pray with me uh, as we consider God's word together this evening? Um, Father, we, we pray, Lord, as our hearts and our minds are often dark toward you and toward your word, Lord, that you would send your light. Um, Father, that you would give us eyes to see and ears to hear, that we might know you, that we might know ourselves, um, Lord, and that we might know Jesus Christ, we pray in his name. Amen. Um, earlier this week, uh, well, I, I like to take my girls to a lot of sporting events, um, and they really enjoy it. And uh, my youngest daughter has not been able to go with us to as many things. Um, I've taken my older, uh, my older uh, daughters to some soccer games and really fun things. And she was like, all right, uh, you know, Dad, it's time. Um, and so I was okay, great. You know what? We'll do a Rockets game. They're not very good. The tickets won't cost that much. Um, and it'll be great because she's never been. And so she'll have a great time nonetheless. And it was, it was, it was a lot of fun. Um, but I've only been to two games in my adult life when Hakeem Olajuwon has not been playing for the Rockets, which in my book is about the glory years of the Houston Rockets. It doesn't really get much better than when he was playing there. So it actually took me by surprise when we got there and there was the, the opening roster announcement and it was different from what it was in the 90s. And I was, I was sorely disappointed, but I remember it used to be, you know, they'd turn all the lights down in the audience and the, the guy would, would yell, all right, Houston, on your feet. Right, and he'd take us through this process, and it'd start, uh, you know, all the techno music, and and we'd stand up and we start clapping, and little by little, they'd start announcing the starting roster for the Rockets, and it'd start with, you know, whoever the number five player was for us that we didn't really care that much about, and it would build, and it would build, and it would build in that crescendo with the lights on the court going nuts until finally he'd yell. Hakeem, the dream, Olajuwon, and we'd all go nuts, right? That was the whole point of that buildup is to get to that crescendo because he is the player that we wanted to be there to watch. He was the player that we wanted uh, to cheer for. And that's how we are accustomed to an announcement of like a world-changing person and player in our life. 
Um, right? That is the type of thing that we expect. Center court with spotlights on them and, and a standing ovation that, that, that comes to follow. But we see something entirely different in Luke's gospel. Right? He is juxtaposing everything that we believe about power, about might, um, and about salvation over against the truth of who he is, about who God is, about God's power, about God's might and his salvation. So far from being at the center court, right, our attention is actually called to leave that place and go to the darkness past, you know, kind of that first level uh, of seat, uh, season ticket holders. We're going into the nosebleeds. We're going even further into the darkness until we can find the little insignificant girl completely in the darkness. Right? Our attention moves from the obvious person that, that Luke begins his gospel with. It, be, it moves from Zechariah, a high priest, in the temple in Jerusalem. And it shifts from there to the hill country um, in Galilee, in this little town that people made fun of because it, nobody was from there. Um, we find an unlikely little 13-year-old girl. That is where the spotlight of Luke's gospel takes us this evening. And that's where our attention is supposed to go. And so um, it moves away from the center court. It moves away from our own expectations about power, about might, about salvation, uh, and about the good life. And it moves to the periphery. And that's what we see here this evening. We see this upside-down reversal of God in all things. And so I want to look particularly at the last two of our, of our scripture reading passages where, where Mary encounters uh, the angel Gabriel and then secondly where, where Mary sings uh, the Magnificat, which uh, we sang together as well. So we're going to look at, at both of those two things uh, in relatively quick fashion uh, this evening. Um, but first, let's look at Mary's encounter with Gabriel. So, so Gabriel... Uh, you know, the angel Gabriel had visited Zechariah already, uh, this uh, ruler in, in the temple. Um, and he promised that Zechariah and Elizabeth, uh, after many long years of, of infertility um, and barrenness, that they were going to give birth to a son. Um, and Gabriel is now showing back up again six months later, right? That's where that passage actually begins. It says six months later, um, six months into Elizabeth's pregnancy. And Luke tells us that the angel Gabriel was sent to Mary, a, a young virgin girl who was betrothed to a man named Joseph. And Luke reiterates the point again and again and again. Mary is a virgin. Why? Why is he reminding us? He says it three different times in that passage. Well, first, he's reminding us of just how young she is. Right? A woman who had never been married in that, age, in that time, uh, but, was, but was of betrothal age, would have been anywhere from 12 to 14 years old. Um, she's young. She would have been living in her father's house at that time. And she would have had little to no social capital at that point. No social significance. In fact, she almost certainly would have been illiterate. And so what she knew about uh, the, the Hebrew Bible, about the Old Testament, was what she was memorized um, and what was taught a little bit at synagogue here and there. She never read any of it for herself. The second, Luke is telling us that she's a virgin because he's trying to remind us that something amazing has happened yet again. 
Right Earlier in Luke, something amazing happened in that God showed up and gave a barren woman a child. And here he's doing the opposite, yet far more amazing of a thing. He's giving a woman who is a virgin a child, right? Because it says in verse 37, and this is all what Luke is partly setting up here, says that nothing will be impossible with God. Our God, who is the very creator of pregnancy, um, can make a barren woman conceive. Our God, who is the creator of pregnancy, can make a virgin woman conceive. So Gabriel says um, that the Holy Spirit is going to come upon Mary. And it's because the baby is conceived by the Holy Spirit, and it's because this child is begotten of God, that the child will then be called the Son of God. And for us, this doesn't strike us uh, kind of as, as odd as it would have. But the title, the Son of God, throughout the ancient Near East, and actually even throughout the Old Testament, would have been a term that designated royalty. Right? It didn't actually mean what we associate it with now, which is Jesus, and therefore the Son of God the Almighty. But it meant a royal person. And so he's flipping our expectations on our head where we're sitting here thinking, oh, He's the son of Joseph, who's a descendant of King David. That's the royal line. That's what makes him a son of God. No, no, he is a son of God because he is son of God Almighty. He's even better than what we had anticipated. So Gabriel comes to a virgin girl on the outskirts of town. Right, that's already, uh, you know, this is on the outskirts of the very outskirts. And he tells this virgin that she will conceive a son by the Holy Spirit and that his son will be the royal son of God. And finally, Gabriel tells her that this man, this son's name is going to be Jesus. Or in Hebrew, what she actually, or what he actually would have said was Yeshua. Um, the very name that we get the word Joshua from. So literally, Jesus' name is his very mission into the world. Because Jesus' name, Yeshua, literally means Yahweh saves. The Lord saves. And so from this girl who wouldn't expect, we wouldn't expect really anything from, we find out that God is going to deliver all of his people. He's going to deliver on all of the promises that he's made up to this point. He's going to save his people. And it's going to happen through this girl. This girl that everyone else would have assumed was an afterthought. But the scriptures tell us here that Mary is actually favored. Far from being an afterthought, she is favored. She's blessed. Not because of what she brings to the table. Not because God looked at her and thought, you know, my kingdom is coming through this Jesus character. And you know what is really going to like tee him up? If I can put him in the right family. So if I can get him a mom that like is super smart and has all of her stuff together. Maybe even that has a little bit of power and influence. And also has a little bit of money. Then I can set all of this up to succeed. No, that's not at all what is going on here. That is not why she is blessed. That is not why she is favored. Mary is blessed and Mary is favored because the Lord delights to show her favor. Nothing more and nothing less. Her gifts, her actions, her righteousness didn't bring about favor or blessing, but rather the love, the care, and the right hand of God showing her favor is what makes her blessed. And make no mistake, she is blessed. 
um, as, as those in the Protestant tradition, we, um, we sometimes can pretend like Mary is nothing special as we're maybe a pendulum swinging against uh, the Roman Catholic tradition. Uh, but y'all, she is blessed. She's the mother of Jesus. She's united to Jesus in a way that we will never be, right? She, uh, she was united to him by umbilical cord. Um, she experienced the presence of the Holy Spirit in a way that we would never experience him. She carried our Lord and Savior in her womb. She taught him to walk and to talk. She taught him to do chores. She's blessed, but not because she's more special than anybody else. She is blessed because God decided to show his favor and blessing upon her. And this is good news for us tonight. Because how often do we think, you know, I need to do something extra special in order to be noticed. I need to do something extra special in order to earn my favor from anyone else, right? I need to, I need to succeed in my job. I need to find love. I need to find someone to look upon me uh, and, and to actually see me for who I am, right? We're kind of, we're out there like raving influencers trying as desperately as we possibly can to get as many likes or as many comments as we can uh, just on who we are as people. But our God doesn't operate that way. He doesn't operate and show us, you know, his favor if we're cool enough, smart enough, and people like us enough. No. It's into the abandoned corners full of unremarkable people that our God actually is paying attention. He sees you in all of your ordinariness. He sees you in your humdrumness. He sees you in your unremarkableness. And it might even be Mary's unremarkableness and her low station in life that makes it so easy for her to respond in faith to the Lord. Right? Unlike Zechariah, who earlier demanded a sign from Gabriel that this could possibly be true, Mary accepts it as true. She asks a few questions about it because she wants to understand how this is possible, but she believes. Right? She responds in faith by saying, I am the servant of the Lord. And her response is even more amazing when we take into account all that this was actually or could have actually cost her. Because she is fully aware that she is a betrothed woman to be married, but not married yet. Right? She is fully aware that to get pregnant prior to marriage at that point in time would have brought shame upon her, would have brought shame upon her family, and possibly it could have even resulted in a death sentence if the law had been enforced to the nth degree. Right? She's fully aware of all that it would cost her, but she is willing to serve the Lord in this capacity because that fear melts away and in, in, uh, in, it melts to the very backdrop in relation to her faith to the Lord. Because we, as we see a few verses later, she responds in worship. And that gets us to, to the second passage I want to look at, which is Mary's song. Um. What does it take for you to sing, um, to, to, to be willing to sing? For some of us, we're willing to belt out in front of others, even when we're just like feeling like 20% of all the feels that we feel. And we're willing to sing in sadness. We're willing to sing in happiness. For others of us, it has to be the right circumstance. Maybe it has to be the shower where we're free from any sense of shame over, over our, our singing. Or uh, maybe it's when we feel um, kind of the sentimentality of a season like Christmas that we're willing to, to sing. 
Um, but in my ministry over the few years uh, that I've been a pastor, I've had numerous different conversations with people about why either they or someone uh, in their family is just sort of unwilling to sing, particularly in church, because of how awkward it is. And, and I certainly understand that to a point. It is, it is awkward. Um, but in my experience, no matter who we are, we ha never have trouble singing when it's something we care about. Right? Um, that oftentimes those of us who struggle to sing at church are the same ones who have no trouble belting out Texas Fight or Hullabaloo, Connect, Connect, or whatever it continues from there, right? Um, we sing about the things that matter to us. When our heart's desires are met, we begin, to, we burst out in song. I don't know how many of y'all saw the like 5 million people in Buenos Aires singing and, and, and chanting together because Argentina won the World Cup. Their heart's desires had been met, and so they're singing out. And that's what's happening here with Mary. She can't contain herself. She responds to the favor of the Lord and to the fulfillment of his promises by bursting into song. And it's a beautiful blend of what has come before and something all new here. See, Mary is a Jewish girl who would have been taught the songs uh, that, would have, uh, that would have been sung at that point. She, she would know the song of Miriam that was sung after, uh, after the Israelite people were delivered crossing through the Red Sea. She knows the song that Hannah sang when she was promised the son Samuel uh, who was going to come and was going to make things right and good again in Israel after the time of the judges. And she's borrowing from these songs as she's singing out here. Well, she's singing in the tradition that she's raised in, but she's adding new things to it because here God is finally promising and to deliver on all that he has promised, I should say. He's bringing about the great reversal that we see in the, God, in the good news of Jesus Christ. She says that her soul magnifies the Lord, right? Her soul, her very presence, her life is a magnifying glass to who God is and what God is doing. She gets to serve as a small priest that kind of projects back to who he is. And as I was reading about it and as I was contemplating it, I couldn't help but think, you know, she gets to serve like those three three-sided mirrors that people would, would suntan with, right? It's, it's not actually uh, shining light. It is reflecting the light of something else onto another. That is what she's doing here. And particularly... She gets to magnify the, the fact that he is a promise-keeping God. That the very promises that he made to Abraham, that he was going to bless all the peoples of the earth, that they are now coming true in Jesus Christ. That God is going to set the whole world to rights. But in order to do that, there has to be this great reversal. Mary sings about how the proud will be scattered. The humble will be exalted. Right? She talks about how the rich will be sent away. Her song is a cry for and an expectation of the justice that needs to happen here in this world because of the injustice that's done by a sinful people. And we find out as we read through the rest of the gospel stories that God is doing this thing. He's bringing about this great reversal through his son. He's bringing comfort to those who mourn. 
He's, he's giving the kingdom of God to those who are poor in spirit. He's satisfying those who hunger and who thirst for righteousness. But in order for this great reversal to take place, it is necessary for a king to come. It is necessary for a judge to come. It is necessary for a savior to come. And that is what's happening with Jesus. When I was, uh, was in school, particularly kind of middle and elementary school, um, I was, uh, shocker, the pastor was a bit of a rule follower. Um, I was a bit of a rule follower in school. And I remember thinking, um, uh, you know, whenever the teacher would leave the room for an extended period of time, that was when my anxiety kicked in big time. Because at that point, there was no one in charge, right? There was no king in Israel, and everyone did what was right in their own eyes. That's exactly what happened in the classroom. It was a Lord of the Flies type of a situation. Kids would get out of their desk. You always had one who'd go up and write on the board. You'd always have one kid who started, like, spitting stuff at people or throwing stuff at people. And then you inevitably always had one or two kids bullying and picking on another, Right? And in order for things to be made right in the classroom, the teacher had to return. And I remember always being disappointed when somehow the class was able to either fool her or she just, I don't know why, the woman, it was always a, a lady teen, uh, teacher, at least in, in my upbringing. Um, but I always felt dissatisfied when she came back in and either she was fooled into thinking we had been good the whole time or she just didn't care. I, it felt unsatisfying, like nobody had been held to account. But when she saw what happened, when she brought justice, when injustice was what was reigning in the classroom, when she put everything in its right place and harmony was restored, that was when it was right and when it was good. And that's what Mary's song is about here. It's not just a desire for justice and peace, but it's a sure expectation that God the judge, God the Savior, uh, is coming. He's bringing peace through his Son, the Son of God. And she's singing that God is coming to set everything right, where the overlooked will be seen, where the oppressed will be free. And as we find out through the rest of the Gospels, God's plan for setting everything into rights is far beyond what Mary is even talking about and singing about here. And it's far beyond what we could even possibly comprehend ourselves. So when we sing and when we read through the words that Mary's singing here, the Magnificat, does that sound like good news to you? If not... Why do you think that is? I think for me at times it's because um, I, I, hold it, I hold dearly those things which Jesus is coming to upend. I hold dearly my own positions of authority, my own positions of power, my own positions uh, of, of wealth. But also I think sometimes we just mute how good Jesus' kingdom is as it's coming. Because wrapped up in this reversal is yes, judgment towards all of us, all of us who rightly deserve it. But it's also good news in addition to, in addition to judgment because Jesus is both judge and he is sacrifice. Right? He offers saving grace to even the proud, even the powerful, and even the wealthy as he sets this world right. 
And so tonight, I want for us to allow for what Mary is singing about and what she's magnifying to lead us to a place of worship. Can we join Mary in magnifying the Lord and, um, and seeing the beauty of what God is coming to do in Jesus Christ? Because he pursues unremarkable people, um, which is offensive to us at times when we admit that to ourselves. But it's also really freeing to realize that we don't have to be remarkable all the time to be seen by our Lord. But he's, he pursues people like you, people like me. He looks upon those of us um, and makes us feel favored and blessed because he shows his favor and his blessing upon us. And through Jesus Christ, he brings salvation because through him, we know that Yahweh does in fact save. And that is what he's coming to do through Jesus Christ. Would y'all pray with me? Our Father, we thank you uh, for what you have done for us in Jesus. We thank you. Um, we thank you for the promises that are true in him, Lord, that, that you are bringing about a reversal um, where sinners like us can be saved, where uh, those of us who have, have been oppressed either by sin or by death or, or, or maybe even by physical powers as well, Lord, that we might be um, we might taste and see the freedom that's offered in your, in your kingdom. And I pray, Lord, that this evening you would draw all of our hearts and our minds toward Jesus. I pray in his name. Amen. Amen.